Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. everyone, welcome back to Talking Tudors episode 101. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger, and it's so great to have your company. As this is the first episode of the month, I'd like to begin by thanking the wonderful patrons who continue to support this podcast and welcome patrons who joined the Talking Tudors family in February. A very warm welcome to Kat, Cora, Annie, Mark, Rana, Christine and Pam. I'm so very grateful for your immense generosity and support. If you love the podcast and tune into every episode, perhaps you'd consider becoming a Talking Tudors patron. Just click on the Be My Patron on Podbean badge on the homepage of my website www.onthetutortrail.com or click on the Be a Patron button on the Podbean app. Join the Talking Tudors patron family and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll be automatically entered into our patron-only monthly giveaways. March's prize is a six-month digital subscription to All About History magazine. I'm very much looking forward to welcoming you to the patron family. Now, on to today's episode. I'm thrilled that joining me on the show to talk about the discovery of a gold statue dubbed the Gold King is Leander Delisle. Leander has been a successful writer and author for over 25 years. She's been a columnist and a commentator on many national newspapers and magazines and currently reviews for the London Times, The Spectator and The Literary Review. Leander read history at Oxford and is the author of several best-selling books on the Tudors and Stuarts. Her most recent book is the prize-winning White King, The Tragedy of Charles I. She's currently working on a groundbreaking biography of Queen Henrietta Maria, the Anne Boleyn of the 17th century. Leander has also acted as historical consultant and appeared in numerous history documentaries on BBC Two, BBC Four and Channel Five, covering subjects from Henry VIII to Lady Jane Grey, from the gunpowder plot to the downfall of Charles I. Our conversation is coming up straight after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sayles. Thank you. 
Welcome back to Talking Tudors, Leander. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Glad to be back. Fantastic. Now, it's been quite some time since you've been on the show. So could you please just introduce yourself to our listeners and just tell us a little bit about your background? I'm a Tudor and Stuart historian. I've written a number of books on the Tudor period. And indeed, most recently, I've written a book on Charles I. My books on the Tudors include After Elizabeth, which is about the end of the Tudor era and um, what came next and how that happened. My other book is on the Grey Sisters. And that's what I spoke about on the last show on, uh, on Lady Jane Grey and her sisters, less well-known sisters, Catherine and Mary. And I've done a book on the whole dynasty called Tudor, the family story, which begins during the Wars of the Roses. So many fantastic books then. I recommend everyone go and have a look at those. And if you want to listen to our last episode, which was fantastic and all about the Grey Sisters, that's number 43 for anyone listening. So today, though, we're talking about a a very exciting recent discovery that you wrote quite a bit about. And it it was a small figurine that possibly once formed part of Henry VIII's crown. So it's very exciting. So Leander, where and when was this discovery made? And what exactly did the metal detectorist find? Well, this guy, a guy called Kevin, found a he was he was allowed to go and look in this field one day in the summer, two or three years ago. And within just kind of 10 minutes, uh, by pure chance and good luck, his um, machine uh, heard a sort of ping and um, he looked around in the ground and he picked up this clod of earth. And in it was this uh, gold figure. And uh, he told me he sort of fell to his knees um, with excitement. He couldn't believe it. And he subsequently contacted me and asked me to research this figure, which I did for him. And um, the first thing I noticed about it was it's a small gold figure uh, of a king. And he was standing on a a spotted antelope, solid gold, this figure with something called rhombos enameling, which had largely worn off, which is a very, very expensive technique at the time, which would have been the 15th century. And uh, the antelope, the spotted antelope, uh, was a symbol associated with Henry VI, who was a king, he was the last Lancastrian king during the Wars of the Roses. He unfortunately suffered from uh, serious mental health problems, and that obviously weakened his kingship and triggered the rivalry of the House of York and really began the Wars of the Roses. Subsequently, poor old Henry VI, after the Battle of Tewkesbury in 1471, where his son and heir was killed. Uh, He was already held in the tower by the Yorkist King Edward IV, and uh, he died the night that Edward IV came back to London. Edward IV said that um, the poor king had died of grief and rage after hearing of the death of his son. Uh, But it's rather more likely it had something to do with the large dent that was subsequently found at the back of his head. Uh, He had uh, been uh, murdered. Edward IV had assumed that king, uh, that you know, people would then rally around him as the only king that the House of Lancaster had been uh, wiped out. He tried to hunt down uh, Henry VI's uh, half half nephew, Henry Tudor, who was a young boy at the time, um, to kill him. But uh, Henry Tudor escaped uh, to Europe. And then, to Edward IV's great horror and surprise, the English people decided that while Henry VI had been a failed king, uh, he had been a good man. And uh, they started praying to him as a saint and miracles started to be reported that he had helped, for example, a man who was being hanged unjustly for theft, said that Henry VI had appeared and put his hand between the rope 
and the man's neck. And so this great cult grew up around Henry VI. People started painting images of him in their churches, uh, in their prayer books, and the Yorkists tried to suppress the cult unsuccessfully. Richard III moved the body to Windsor, but the cult continued. And when Henry Tudor eventually became king, he decided to encourage the cult of Henry VI uh, because he had no blood right to the throne because he was of illegitimate descent. And so he argued um, that although he had no blood right to the throne, God had decided that he should be king. He was king by divine providence. And his proof for that was that his holy and saintly uncle, Henry VI, had prophesied his rule. And of course, being a saint, you know, he, was, he knew God personally and so knew what he was talking about. And after that, the cult grew and grew so that Windsor, uh, the, the royal chapel at Windsor, became like a sort of enormous tourist centre, the greatest pilgrimage site in England, greater than Thomas Becket at Canterbury. And so this gold figure could be associated with the tomb and with perhaps the relics of Henry VI there. But there is also another possibility. Yes, I've, I've actually heard quite a lot about the um, cult that grew up around Henry VI, which is quite, I find quite fascinating because I, I have read that, you know, people pray to him for everything from an earache to, you know, much more serious things. So that, that's quite interesting, isn't it? And I was wondering, Leander, if you could tell us a little bit about what we know of what the crown actually looked like. So Henry VIII's crown before you go into um, any other details and, and maybe tell us a little bit about on what occasions the king would have worn his crown because it wasn't every day, obviously, that he had it on. Yes, well, Kevin um, mentioned to me that he had been Googling associations between the cult of Henry VI and the Tudors. Uh, and then he then doing this, he discovered that historic royal palaces had uh, decided to recreate uh, the lost Tudor state crown. And it was lost because it was melted down after the Civil War, after the execution of the Stuart King Charles I in 1649, after 1649. And when they recreated it, they saw this image of Charles I standing next to his a crown in a picture by the uh, portraitist Daniel Mittens. And they used this, uh, uh, and they also used the Tudor inventories. And they looked at the ones during the reign of Henry VIII. Now, the last inventory uh, after his death in 1547 described how there were three little figures of kings in the part of the crown. And um, historic royal palaces believed that these were the three saint kings of England, one of whom was, of course, Henry VI. And so when Kevin went to look at the replica crown in, in, at Hampton Court, he was very excited when he saw a figure that looked extremely like his own real figure of Henry VI gazing back at him. Now, I looked at uh, these uh, all these inventories myself. There was one earlier in Henry VIII's reign, 1520, and it described three figures of Christ. And so they seem to have been replaced before 1547 by these three kings. It doesn't name the three kings, I should say. I wondered why would the three figures of Christ been replaced with three figures of three kings? Well, one reason was that um, while during the reign of Henry VI, for example, the crown was used uh, in processions on all the sort of holy days. Under Henry VIII, he, it was really used principally um, outside the coronation, obviously, for processions during Epiphany. And Epiphany, of course, is when the Magi, the three kings, visit Christ and give him the gifts. And so this would explain, uh, this would be one good reason, I think, why these figures of Christ might have been replaced with figures of three kings. 
Yeah, that definitely makes sense. Thank you for clarifying. Now, is this the same crown? So that crown that was in the inventory at Henry's death, is this the same crown that his children would have also worn? And and what happened to it after Elizabeth's death? Um, yes, they would have worn it, but um, I, obviously it would have been rather very large for, for example, his y- young son, Edward the Sixth, and also for Elizabeth and um, Mary. Uh, and there are signs, which I'll come to later, that this crown was cut down. Uh, and so I think it was used during coronation, sort of plopped on their head for a minute and then taken off because there were there was more than one crown. There was the crown of Edward the Confessor. There were different crowns, but uh, it clearly still existed uh, because, um, as I said, there is this picture of it with Charles I standing next to it. And he used to wear it for the state opening of Parliament. By this time, however, uh, the cult of saints had ended, of course, with the Reformation. Henry VI's tomb at Windsor had been uh, demolished and removed. I mean, Henry VIII's tomb as well. I mean, there were bits and bobs probably left, you know, hanging around in storerooms and so forth. But uh, the relics had all been put away and Henry VI was no longer treated as a saint. He was really simply regarded as a failed king. I see. And and so in terms of what evidence there is to indicate that the the figure once did form part of the crown, is uh, the inventory is the main source or is there anything else that, that points um, to that? No, definitely the inventories are the main source. Um, and I think, as I said, so there were figures of three kings. Historic royal palaces believe they were the three saint kings of England. We can't be certain of that. It's possible that this gold figure was, I believe, it's also, you know, could be part of the crown, could be part of a reliquary, in which case it'd still be incredibly rare because the vast, vast majority of reliquaries were destroyed. Over 95% of religious art in England was destroyed. Uh, could be part of a small devotional altar. We don't know. As I said, historic royal palaces believe it remained. And um, this portrait by Daniel Mittens has an image of the virgin and child on the crown, which was also described in the 1547 inventory. The question then comes up, well, how did this figure end up in a sort of Northamptonshire yes. field? Now, historic royal palaces believe no, that the figure would have stayed on the crown and would have then been uh, melted down and destroyed uh, after Charles I's execution, when most of the regalia was destroyed. In fact, the only intact piece of the old medieval regalia to have survived is a, is a 12th century anointing spoon. And all sorts of stones were taken off the crown and bagged up like sweets. So um, how did it end up in this Northamptonshire field? Well, I, I noticed, well, I was very struck by the fact that this figure was found absolutely where the part of the Royalist army in 1645, during the middle of the Civil War, um, prepared to confront the uh, parliamentarian army at the Battle of Naseby in 1645, and also very much on the flight path. We'll come to that later when Charles I fled the battlefield, as did his army, and his baggage uh, was captured. So I suppose the question is, if this figure was on the crown, was it removed before the Civil War in 1642? And I think that is possible, because I found another image by Van Dyck of Charles I and the state crown. Van Dyck's painted the crown from the back. You can see it's been cut down to make it smaller, which makes sense because both, you know, Henry VIII's children and the Stuarts were all smaller people than he was. And you can't see the figures. Now, this image was painted in 1639. Charles I is in armour. He's about to go to battle, to war with uh, the Scots, uh, who are in rebellion against him because he's trying to impose an English-style prayer book on them, which they regard as popish. Now, clearly, these 
figures of three saint kings would also be viewed as popish. So it's possibly had the removed because he didn't want to be associated with anything that looked popish before he was about to go to war uh, with the Scots. And uh, he might want to embellish his, his, his Protestant uh, credentials. Or he could have had it with him because it was part of something belonging to the tomb of, of, Henry, the, of Henry VI. I mean, it is very interesting. Why would Charles, I assume, why would Charles want to have with him something that associates him with a king who lost a civil war and he himself is fighting a civil war? And I know, well, I know that he had a chaplain uh, called Hammond. His um, chaplain uh, was born at uh, Chertsey Abbey. Uh, where Henry VI was originally buried and had associate had other was educated at Eton, which was founded by Henry VI, and it is possible that he encouraged Charles to see some association with Henry VI. I mentioned earlier this business of uh, Henry VI saving a man who was being unjustly executed. Well, Charles I believed that all his problems stemmed from his decision to sign the death warrant of an innocent man, as he believed uh, Thomas Wentworth, Earl of Stratford, his servant. Uh, and he believed right until his own execution that God was punishing him for the execution of this innocent man for treason. And so that could be the reason why he wanted to keep this figure of Henry VI. In any event, the fine sight is very strikingly, as I said, near the battlefield of Naseby. Now, when, Henry the, when Charles I escaped the parliamentarian army, he's described as actually galloping through enemy lines. He even drops his pistols as he does so. His fleeing army, as I said, included his baggage train. Oliver Cromwell had instructed his men not to stop to pillage, but to chase the army down, which they did for something like six hours, and to hunt down the king. There was a horrendous uh, massacre during this process of the women in the baggage train, when up to 400 women were killed. Uh, and others were brutally uh, mutilated uh, with something called the whore's mask when their noses were cut off and their, and their mouths slashed with a, with a sword to give them a sort of hideous grin. So imagine the scene of this massacre, these fleeing and frightened uh, people. Uh, the soldiers have been told not to stop to plunder, but you, you, know, you see valuable objects you're going to snatch and grab at them. You're not a rich man. So it would have been very easy for a small gold figure in the panic and the chaos uh, to fall into the earth and not to be found for several hundred years. And that is possibly what has happened here. That's incredible. What an incredible story. And do you know, you might not have this information, but do you know at what depth it was? Was it very deep? No, I don't think it was very deep. Wow. Um, I, don't that, I don't think that's that uncommon. Uh, I think, you know, often things, because I think where, where, the, where the detectorists tend to look, um, and I'm not a metal detectorist, but I'm sure some of your listeners are, um, is often on ploughed land. Right, of course, they, yeah. you know, they like ploughed fields. And, and actually, as far as I recall, where this object was found, which was near a golf course of all things, um, was near a pond as well that had been, where the earth had been disturbed by cattle. Uh, and so it was quite near the surface. And uh, of course, being gold, gold, you know, survives very well staying in the ground. The enameling, you can still see the remnants of the enameling. The enameling's not all there. You can see at the base of it, the initials SH for St. Henry, which is why we know it postdates his death. So it postdates yeah, 1471. That's amazing. And so what's happened to it now, Leander? It's with the um, British Museum and they are studying it and researching it and um, they will eventually offer Kevin you know, a sum for his find. 
uh, and then hopefully it will be put on on display for us all to see. And there's nothing else like it that I'm aware of. We have these uh, pilgrimage badges, which were like, were like sort of tourist tat of the time of, of you know, we're talking the late 15th, early 16th century here. People wore when they went to, to go and see a pilgrimage site, just as people might when they go to Lourdes today, and they're made of cheap lead alloy. So there's nothing like it's been found in solid gold and rhomboss enameling before. So it seems, and it has a pin on the back, which looks like it's been attached to something. If the people go to my website, leanderdelisle.com, I've put in a series of images of um, similar sorts of figures that belonged to uh, reliquaries or small devotional altars, as well as the figure um, produced by historic royal palaces in their replica of Henry VIII's crown. So they can have a look themselves and see what they think. Fantastic. Yes. And the article you wrote is fantastic on your website as well. So just clarifying, the only thing that we know that survives from the Tudor coronation regalia is the coronation spoon. Is that correct? That's right. Yes. The, 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 the only intact piece of the regalia is this 12th century anointing spoon. And what is in a way quite fascinating is what of course is this anointing spoon was used to use to anoint both Henry VI and Charles I. And I suppose whatever the truth about this figure of Henry VI, whether it's part of a reliquary or whether it was part of Henry VIII's crown, it does in a fascinating way uh, unite the stories of these two kings, Henry VI and Charles I, both of whom were failed kings whose rule ended in a civil war, both of whom died violently. Henry VI was murdered, Charles I was executed, and both uh, were named as saints by kind of popular demand. Henry VI, uh, by the English people, he was never declared a saint by the Catholic Church, and Charles I, who also became the Church of England's martyr king. And this figure in this gold field unites those two stories and, of course, all the Tudors that came between them. Fantastic. And, and no wonder that there were lots of excited people when they um, found out about the discovery. So I'm so happy that you've clarified things for us, and I look forward to hearing about what happens with it now and maybe seeing it one day in the flesh. That would be great. Now, Leander, I can't let you go without asking you whether you're currently working on anything. Are you working on any books at the moment? Uh, yes, I'm uh, working on a biography of Charles I's wife, Henrietta Maria. And um, strangely enough, and I imagine this probably is not something people expect to hear, but I see many similarities with her uh, and Anne Boleyn. Both, of course, um, Queen Consort, are both uh, French educated and regarded very suspiciously in England. Uh, both had religious views, which didn't chime with the majority of people in England, and that caused them um, great problems. Anne Boleyn was, of course, executed. Henrietta Maria was frequently threatened with trial for treason and execution. And indeed, the fate of Anne Boleyn was regularly held up to her as a kind of uh, threat as to what the English were liable to do to queen consorts they didn't take to. And anyway, so yes, I'm very much enjoying, I'm very much enjoying doing that, working on her life at the moment. That sounds wonderful. And do you have, do you know when that might be ready ready to go out to the public or not yet? I don't think we'll see it until, I don't think we'll see it until next year, I'm afraid. Yeah, um, yeah. I like to take my time over these things, do them properly. Of course, yeah. It takes a long time, doesn't it? I know. Um, and one last thing, Leander, before I let you go, do you have a Tudor takeaway for our listeners? So something that they might go out and have a little look at after the episode? 
Well, there's a new uh, history magazine called Aspects of History, um, which uh, is a sort of platform for lots of historians and writers, not just in um, non-fiction, which is what I do, but also in fiction, so historical novels and so forth, uh, and has a few Tudor and Stuart historians uh, amongst them. So I think Aspects of History is quite an exciting new thing, and it does links you to all sorts of different things, interviews as well as magazine articles and various sort of things on these author platforms. So I think that's one thing. Uh, and the other thing I was thinking is it's always quite fun to have a look at uh, the uh, calendar of state papers Venetian. Uh, you can just do that on Google. You don't have to be a member of anything special. You don't have to pay anything. If there's a particular year or date that interests you, you can go there and you can read all the gossip of the Venetian ambassadors at the time on what was happening in Tudor England. You can type, it, type in a name of a particular character you're interested in to see what the gossip is on them in any particular month or year or day. Great stuff. Yeah, they are so entertaining and they're a very deep rabbit hole though. I think you could fall down there and yeah. stay for quite some time. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, it's been such a pleasure chatting with you again and I'm so looking forward to hearing more about your new project and thank you again for taking the time to talk Tudors with us. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure to come back. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. Mm-hmm.